Hello, listeners. I'm Alastair Murden, and this is another episode of Superstitions, where we look deep into the soul of humanity, telling short stories about how we might explain the inexplicability of the world. As far back as we know, the moon has always held a mysterious pull on humanity. It's a feminine symbol that often represents mystery, darkness, and emotion. This is no different in astrology. If your rising sign is how you seem, and your sun sign is who you are, then your moon sign is how you feel and what you believe. It is the parts of the self that are the deepest and the most inexplicable. It's the closest you might get to the soul. So you can see how, for relationships, moon signs are essential. Because in something as emotional as love, tensions are bound to flare up. If your partner makes you angry about something, your moon sign may predict how you react. And if you and your partner feel in completely different ways, you may not be able to understand each other, and that might affect your ability to communicate. But moon signs also speak to what you need in life to feel emotionally fulfilled. So you might be a Taurus sun sign who's married their dream cancer. But be warned, because if you've got a fiery center, another person's watery core might put you out. You can find episodes of Superstitions and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Coming up, Two Lovers Doomed by the Moon. My dearest Martha, please, I have so much to explain. When we met in the fall of 1847 in Philadelphia, I was in awe of your boldness. It was in your family's doll shop, remember? And I asked for a loaf of rye bread and you told me that I must try the sourdough instead. Didn't I want to be a little adventurous? And then we had a picnic. You spoke to me about your hopes and dreams, how you one day wanted to be married with a house and a chicken and four kids. You had a small, dark-haired doll you'd been saving for your first daughter. But then you said shyly that you hoped to do spiritual readings, that you were trying to understand the role of the stars and love, that you felt your life's purpose was to make sense of it all. You didn't elaborate much further, but I knew then that you were a woman with deep secrets, a woman whose bark I wanted to peel off, whose roots I wanted to dig up, we were a good match, you said. Our sun signs were vastly compatible. You were what you called an Aries with fire and motivation, and I was what you called a Gemini with personality and charisma. There was more to it, you said you thought, something you could not quite understand nor see. But you thought we would build a sound life together, a great life, you'd said, like a woman who knew exactly what she wanted. Greatness is what I wanted too, I said. So we married. I'd been trying to build a coal business at the time, remember? It was with my brother, and it was doing fine. Not great, but it could have bought you the house and the chicken with room for four kids. My own parents were so proud, with me rising above our humble upbringings. Everybody told me that I was cheery, optimistic, and happy. Could obtain business by wit alone. But on the inside... I felt something else, restless, unsure of myself, stuck in my hometown. 
I wanted adventure, greatness, and I wanted you to come along. There'd been talk of riches in California, volcanoes in the river waiting to explode with gold. A family acquaintance had said the journey there was treacherous. Only a few years prior, a family had grown so cold they'd eaten each other. An adventure. I worked so hard to convince you, do you remember? We were trying to light the fire. That winter was so cold you were shivering yourself to sleep. You did not like the idea of starting over at first and told me you wanted to be settled, begin our family. But I said we didn't have enough money, not yet. That if we made the trip, I would make us rich and buy us a large plot of land and build a house with a studio where you could give your spiritual guidance and then we would have a child. I turned to you and held your hand. You stared deep into my eyes. There were great depths of thought hidden behind your pupils, yet you did not speak. You simply asked me, do you promise? Of course, I said, reminding you that we wanted the same thing, greatness. So we went. I spent days, weeks, then months panning for gold with the other settlers. I learned how to hold conversations up and down the lines, find out who had secured a nugget and where more might be found. And I made enough to settle us into a small cabin just outside Sacramento. You asked me then if I was happy, and I told you that I was. It was thrilling at first. Every morning you would go, not knowing whose life would change that day. But eventually, I grew tired of boots, of wet and wrinkled hands, and of the dirt. I needed more. A change of scenery. So I convinced you to move to San Francisco. Told you, you will love the big city. And you cried. And for an evening retreated into the bedroom. But the next morning you came out and said you would go with me. And you likely did not regret it because there I started a gold exporting business. Do you remember those days? I worked tirelessly going to bars with every merchant in town. That made us rich and me so influential that all in the city kept telling me, Thomas, you must get into politics. We considered this a long while. You were upset with me then asked me, when will we have a child? But I told you it would come, and that first, you must be the first lady of San Francisco. It would be a new adventure. So I went out campaigning, first for a spot as city alderman. I talked to each and every resident, told them about the economic potential of the Bay, my plans to build the greatest city in the West. And this was so rewarding for me, do you remember? I met so many people from so many different backgrounds, saw their faces light up when I told them I would make the city better. And I did. I built new trade roads to and from Sacramento. I welcomed Chinese immigrants. I grew our business tenfold, do you remember? So next, of course, I was encouraged to run for mayor. You almost stopped me, of course. Mayorship would mean a new house, more work, more travel, more time apart. You asked me again when we would start our family. I said not to worry. Just this last thing. The race for mayor was heating up and I wanted to at least throw my name in. You sighed deeply and said, Okay. I asked you if you were sure, as I could sense there was a greater meaning to your sigh than surrender. But again, you said nothing. So, I began the campaign. I went door to door, I bought sweets, shook hands, met families and kissed babies, so many babies. 
and you were always at my side. Hair done up in a bow, your countenance charming and sweet, you were the perfect politician's wife. I said so in my speech, remember? I said that I would marry you just as soon as my term was over. And it was so good that we waited, Martha, because in those next two years, I opened our first schools, I built a fire department, and I did much travel, trying to connect the port to trade and commerce. It was so exciting to see the other cities, Seattle, sunny Los Angeles, and even once, Hong Kong. The newness of every day gave me a sense of purpose. I never knew what was going to happen next. And that was the truth, Martha. You were asking me to settle down, to recommit myself to you. I toyed with my wedding ring often then. I was starting to feel ill at the thought of one plot of land or one house for the rest of my life. But this I did not say to you. You took us just south to San Jose, to our home, the farmhouse amongst rolling hills and the one we live in now. But as you were setting up and telling me our children would run in the yard, I was holding a letter behind my back with a job offer in New Zealand. The country was experiencing a gold rush of their own. They needed a US ambassador who could help them build infrastructure, set up trade with Asia. They needed me. It was the most thrilling offer I'd ever gotten. I wanted it greatly, but when I brought the news to you and told you how it would change our lives, how it would be our greatest adventure yet, you said no. You pressed your hand to your stomach hard, as if trying to hold in some great pain. Then you pulled the doll you'd wanted to give to a daughter off the shelf, looked me in the eyes and said, when will we settle? When will you be happy? You said you were done and threw the doll at me. Done, done, do you hear me? I left anyway. I did write, daily, do you remember? about how I'd gotten set up in an apartment and how I was making great strides with the people of Otago. But your responses were short and tempered. You were busy breeding cats and plucking eggs from the chickens, you said, adding, enjoy your time, looking forward to having you home. You had nothing new to tell me and I felt no reason to go home. All the while, the woman in the apartment below had so many stories to tell, so much feeling inside. She was French and had arrived on the continent with her husband, a whaler. But some years later, her husband had gone out in search of a great humpback and died at the hands of the ocean. He left behind her and a two-year-old boy. And I'm sorry for the affair, Martha. I am. It's just that I found her so irresistible, so endearing, in the same way I had once felt about you. Do you remember? Do you remember? when we were that new and everything was a great adventure. Afterwards, I felt so guilty. It ate away at me at night and I began taking long walks through the town, a few times almost straining my ankles on the dimly lit cobblestone streets. I began to realize that all my adventures had started to feel the same. At first, I would have a rush of energy and make many friends and acquaintances, but Eventually, I would grow tired of them, see them for their faults, and then I would need something new again. I walked often in those weeks following the affair, until I got a letter from you saying we had a daughter 
and that her life and your life were in danger and I must come home. Coming up, Martha has a story of her own. Love. It's been the subject of poems, novels, music, and film. It's also been the driving force behind some of the most horrendous crimes in history. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Join me for season two of Criminal Couples and meet the lovers who took their passion to perilous lengths. Featuring standout episodes from female criminals, serial killers, solved murders, and crimes of passion, this season of Criminal Couples gets to the heart of what makes two turn to a life of murderous crime. Some couples were set off by revenge or greed. Others were fueled by sex and drugs. All acted in the name of love. Discover the darker side of desire in season two of the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Follow for free and tune in every Monday, only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. My dearest Thomas, it is with a deep-seated rage that I write to you today, for there is so much you did not think to ask, or much you have ignored since that fateful fall day. You were charming, yes, when you asked me to recommend a loaf of bread and then took me out to a picnic. You spoke to me about your own dreams as you spread blackberry jam on a slice of sourdough. You talked about how you wanted to always keep growing, how you wanted to be well off and have freedom, how very interested you were in people. And I was interested in the study of others too. I thought we were a good match. I said I wanted a great life, a family, a home, stable roots. You married me and said you wanted greatness too. But I understand now that you would have never found it. For all your talk on the outside, on the inside, you are too scared, too insecure to ever commit to greatness. You can't even commit to yourself. A year after we met, your business was growing. We were looking for homes on the outskirts of Philadelphia when you turned to me and said, I don't know about the cold. You had never before mentioned the weather. You said it in such an ambivalent way, as if it weren't about the weather at all. Then you went on and on about the climate and about how you felt it impacted your business's potential and how if you had no more growth, there were no more people, no more ideas and then you would just be another coal miner. And all of this you blamed on the weather. I tried to remind you that I had been the one doing the books, as you didn't have any sort of financial mind. We had plenty of money, I said, but you didn't listen to me. Instead, you spoke of California and sunshine and gold, said you had booked a wagon and would I come with you? What choice did I have, Thomas? You had promised me a child, and I had promised you loyalty. So I packed us up, and I mapped out our route of travel so we would not grow cold and be forced to eat each other. I got us through winter and to the west, all so you could procure your gold. But then you had problems with that too. I poured myself a cup of tea as you tried to convince me we needed to move to the big city. I asked you why, as we had everything we needed in our home and our land and your work. I said I did not want to move, that I had enough movement and change already. And you grabbed my hand and said, that's exactly it. 
Change is the adventure. I retreated to the bedroom for the evening, locked you out, and wept. Sometime later, I pulled a small, stuffed doll out of a drawer. It was one my mother had given to me just before she passed, and said, Martha, someday you will give this to your own daughter. I rubbed the top of its head. When I had first shown this to you, you had found it wondrous. You had wanted to know more about my mother and said you were sad you had never met her. But then you talked over me about your own father. And I should have known then that your interest in me was fleeting. A butterfly in a rainstorm. At first it would seem to defy all odds, then disappear to the wind. But instead, I put the doll back in the drawer and moved to the city where I ran the books. I wrote up the contracts. I made the deals while you just went to bars. And then, when you were asked to run for alderman and then mayor, I did the dirty work of campaigning. You did not want to see that it was a corrupt city, that in order to win, bribes would have to be paid, promises kept to influential people, but no promises kept to me. And that time, when you were mayor, was when a cloud darker than the city's fog formed over me. I could sense your distance. You were always traveling. And when you came home, your mind was elsewhere. On the next trip, the next meeting, on all the positive things you were doing for the city, the state, the country. By the time I moved us south to San Jose, that dark cloud had whispered its way inside me, forming a seed in my uterus. Finally, I was pregnant. Before I could tell you, you told me you wanted to move to New Zealand. You did not see that I was ill, throwing up every morning and spending more time in bed than ever before. You did not see what I had to tell you. And I cared no more. So I threw the doll at you and said I was done, done, done. Do you hear me? You took that as a sign that you should leave. You did not see that I was simply scared. To your credit, you wrote at first daily. You told me that you'd gotten set up in an apartment and that there was a nice woman downstairs with a small child, making you excited to become a father someday. But you weren't ready yet, you said. You were making great strides in helping gold and metal and trade flourish. New Zealand would be a gold-rich country, you said, with your help, not knowing there was a nugget growing inside me. But then the letters waned and became weekly, and I got bigger. Soon they came every two weeks, and I got bigger again. By month five, when you were supposed to return to me, only one came and I was too big for myself. You'd been delayed, you wrote with no explanation. So I did my own digging and spoke to a mutual acquaintance who had gone down to visit you. There was someone else, the acquaintance said. A woman with a young boy he'd fallen in love with. I reeled with pain and betrayal. You didn't make the birth. The baby shot out like a serrated knife. Labor was rough and painful, but you wouldn't have known. I held it, and I smelled it. Its scent was floral, 
so I named it Daisy. But I didn't love it. I couldn't. For then, I felt a deep sadness I had never known. The baby ate at me, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. But it had been growing long before that. We had moved three times, and your job had changed many more. And because of that, I had never been settled enough in myself to give love to another. I had neither the stamina nor the strength. And it's so hard for me to admit this, to tell anyone about the things I feel and the things I fear the most. But sometimes, when the baby was sleeping, I would stand in the kitchen and hold a knife in my hand, dragging it along my skin, just to feel something. I needed you to come home. So I wrote to you and waited and waited. And then, when I heard you come home, I ran into the bathroom and pulled out this pen and paper. And now you are here, knocking on the bathroom door, telling me to come out, that my daughter needs me. But I am floating in the water with that same knife giving you the adventure, the thrill, and the excitement that you were looking for. I want to die by the light of the moon. Martha, please, please open the door, Thomas said, holding a four-month-old daughter on his hips. From the other end, there was silence. I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, I was... I was only trying to build us a life together. Greatness, do you remember? Martha. Martha! Then suddenly, she spoke. Is this not greatness? You, Thomas, having to save me from myself. What happened to us, Martha? We had dreams and goals. We loved each other. She replied. You left me. And then... When I needed you the most, you didn't come home. Thomas grew angry. But you didn't tell me. You didn't let me in. He tried to continue, but what was the use? They were on two completely different pages, he realized. His greatness and her greatness weren't the same. Suddenly, he had an idea. He walked away from the bathroom and went towards their bedroom, rummaging through drawers. In her bedside table, he found it. The small doll she'd always spoken of. He brought it to the bathroom and slowly slipped it under the door. You said your mum gave this to you, and you wanted to give it to your own daughter so she would give it to hers. Give her a memory of you, Martha. Don't go this way. For some time, it was silent. And then, in a whisper, you were listening. She said, sometimes, he said, I do. Then there were more moments, the longest of his life. But eventually he heard the water turn off and footsteps move towards the door. The knob turned and Martha emerged in a nightgown, her hair soaked. She held Daisy, smelled her head deeply, then turned to him and said, 
I want a divorce. It's rare that you'd ever be able to tell someone's moon sign up front, or even after you've been dating for a few months, but for long-term compatibility, it's one of the most important aspects in one's charts. Your moon sign doesn't just tell you about how you manage your emotions, it can also tell you what things you need in life in order to feel emotionally secure and fulfilled. A Sagittarius moon sign, for example, like one of our characters today, craves adventure, excitement, and newness. They don't like convention or being tied down. They need partners that are willing to go on their journeys with them, or they need to be free to roam. On the other hand, a Scorpio moon sign craves stability, commitment, and loyalty. They have deep wells of emotions that can become unhinged if they feel pain or betrayal. Yet, for lack of trust, they often keep their feelings hidden, not allowing them to come out until it's too late. You can see why differing moon signs might eventually lead to a split, because outwardly, two people might be initially attracted to each other. Then, they might get to know each other better and talk about what they want out of life. And they might be on the same page then. A Gemini and an Aries, for example, are poised for an adventurous and successful relationship. An Aries wants vocational success, while a Gemini may want to surround themselves with intellectual people. Together, the two might seem unstoppable. Dig deeper, however and you might find trust to be an issue. Geminis can be tricksters, wearing different faces for different people, and Aries are often passionate and direct. Coupled, pun not intended, with incompatible moon signs like Scorpio and Sagittarius, their relationship may dramatically wane. And if there's anything storytelling can teach us, it's that what someone wants is not always what they need. And that's especially true in love and marriage. Thanks again for listening to Superstitions. Join us next week for our final week of our astrology and romance series as we talk about karma and north nodes and come to a conclusion on whether love is truly written in the stars. You can find more episodes of Superstitions and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Until next time, be wary of the things you cannot explain. Superstitions is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Erin Larson. This episode of Superstitions was written by Stacey Lee Nemec, with writing assistance by Greg Castro, fact-checking by Anya Bailey, and research by Erin Lan. I'm Alastair Murden. It's been said that love is a many-splendored thing. That is, until it's not. In season two of Criminal Couples, discover true stories of couples who turned their love lives into a life of crime. 
Lies and deceit are just the beginning. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Catch new episodes every Monday, free and only on Spotify. 